And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I would like once again to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show. I really do appreciate all the listeners out there. And I hope everyone enjoyed the last episode where we took a look at Godzilla Mothra Mechagodzilla Tokyo SOS, as well as Marvel Comics Godzilla number 19. Now, we've got a good show for you today. We're jumping back from the millennium era of Godzilla all the way back to the Showa era. We're going back to 1967 to take a look at the uh, somewhat infamous Son of Godzilla. Uh, it's the summer, it's July, it's, you know, warm, muggy. I figured a nice tropical excursion uh, would be a, a lot of fun. I'm here in my Hawaiian shirt, and I uh, may or may not have a, uh, a cool drink here with me uh, to have a very summery uh, film for a very summer episode. We're also going to be taking a look at Marvel Comics Godzilla number 20, continuing the uh, shrunk-down adventures of Godzilla in New York City in and around Manhattan, uh, mostly in Manhattan, as well as guest starring the Fantastic Four. So always good to get uh, the first family of Marvel Comics in a Marvel comic that we're covering here on the show. Now let's get into a little bit of news. Now, the hype has started in full effect for Godzilla, King of the Monsters, thanks to the just-completed San Diego Comic-Con, a.k.a. Comics-Con International 2018. Uh, in the lead-up to the event, we got the first teaser video, which featured uh, Millie Bobby Brown, who uh, a lot of people would know from Stranger Things. Uh, her character is trying to contact Monarch via radio, and then we hear coming back all sorts of panicked reports about various goings-on uh, in the world. Uh, then the Monarch website is also uh, went live where it was teasing uh, sightings of the monsters being tracked all over the world. The Monarch website's been out there for a while, but it mostly had been idle. And now all of these sightings came live, so to speak, as we were coming up to the uh, uh, the Saturday at San Diego. Now that Saturday, the first trailer for Godzilla King of the Monsters dropped, which gave us our first glimpses of the new versions of Mothra, Rodan, and King Ghidorah. And the plot, as we can uh, imply from the trailer it seems to revolve around the extinction of the human race and the return of these so-called titans which obviously would be the monsters now the trailer looks fantastic uh, not a big smash up type of trailer a little bit more thoughtful kind of hiding the monsters kind of in shadow and uh, smoke and obscuring them very similar to what was done with the first film where we didn't come right out and see Godzilla in the early trailers and the, he was more implied so I'm very happy to see that. The trailer looks really cool. The story sounds cool from what we have. We can gather from that. I have my speculations about what the actual plot line will be. I'm going to keep that to myself. Um, I may elaborate on that as we get a little bit closer, but for now I'm just kind of going on first impressions. and uh, I've not fully formed in my mind, I don't think, what my speculation is. But uh, a very, very exciting time 
to be a uh, Godzilla fan with the announcement of the new movie and a huge response on social media from this uh, for a San Diego Comic-Con that had several very well-received trailer debuts. The King of the Monsters one was uh, one of the top ones on a lot of things that I've seen. And uh, I know my Twitter feed was blowing up, as the kids say, uh, with responses to that. So you can go check that out uh, just about anywhere. YouTube, you can find the trailer or any of the stuff you're looking for. It's easily uh, available out there. In other Godzilla news, on July 18th, Godzilla City on the Edge of Battle debuted on Netflix worldwide. This is the second installment in the uh, trilogy of animated films that Toho is producing for Godzilla. The sequel, of course, to Godzilla Planet of the Monsters. The third installment is entitled Godzilla Planet Eater, and right now it's set to show up in Japanese theaters later this year in November. Now, there is no international release date at this time, but it's been at least six months or so from the debut of the film in Japan before it's released worldwide. So if it's debuting in November, probably spring or summer of 2019, I guess we can speculate to see that on Netflix if you're not in Japan, which obviously I'm not. Have not had a chance to watch City on the Edge of Battle, hoping to get some free time uh, to, to watch that in the next couple of weeks or so. And we, I do intend to cover these films on the show, just have not been able to line up a time to talk about the first one. And, um, you know, maybe maybe this will be the impetus if I can watch the second one and line up um, the discussion for the for the uh, the first film. I, I enjoyed the first film. I mean, obviously, it wasn't it wasn't perfect. It was a bit different, a bit more anime than Godzilla in a lot of ways, uh, if that makes any sense. And I, I think you anime fans out there may know what I'm getting at. It played more like a more... Um, a science fiction anime more so than a, a monster, a daikaiju anime. And I think that turned off some viewers. I, I enjoyed it. I probably, I know probably, I definitely do need to rewatch it. And obviously if I cover it on the show, I'll rewatch it. So go out there, check out City on the Edge of Battle. Let me know what you think. Keeping on Netflix news, the Ultraman anime is going to be uh, screened on Netflix. Uh, worldwide is my understanding. Now, this is projected for spring of 2019. We don't have a hard date for this yet. Uh, you know, Netflix, um, and usually they give kind of vague dates until we get closer. Now, this, of course, is based on the manga, and this anime had been announced, uh, I want to say, back in 2017. And I want to say there was a teaser either very end of 2017 or beginning of 2018, and it very much looks like the manga with the uh, the character design of the young Ultraman and uh, it, it appears to be very similar to a lot of modern animes where it's a mix of cell and computer animation. The little teaser that I've seen looks looks excellent, and I'm very excited for this. I really do like the manga. I've read the first either three or four, I think the first three uh, volumes of the, uh, I think Viz has translated the manga here in the U.S., and I really enjoyed it, so very much looking forward to that. Plus, being on Netflix will be easy uh, to see here. Well, I already subscribed to Netflix, so it'll be easy for me to watch it. So I'm very much excited for that. Uh, hat tip to um, uh, Sci-Fi Japan for this information. And sticking on animated tokusatsu news, if that makes any sense, SSSS.Gridman, which is the anime reboot slash sequel to the tokusatsu show Gridman, which of course was localized here in the States as Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad back in the 90s, will begin airing in October in Japan with the plan that it will stream on Funimation's Funimation Now service later on in the fall in the United States. Now, Funimation and 
anime tokusatsu streaming service Crunchyroll have a working relationship where a lot of Funimation now um, uh, uh, dubbed anime ends up being streamed on Crunchyroll. So I am hoping that this means that SSSS.Gridman will be available on Crunchyroll by the end of the year. That That's the speculation I've seen. I don't have any confirmation on this yet. But again, the, the little teaser trailer they put out looks very neat. Reminds me clearly of the short that was produced at the anime festival back in, I think, 2017. That was kind of the kickoff for all this. It really seems to be... I think this is going to be more of a sequel than a reboot because it seems to be embracing the ideas that were proposed for the sequel to Gridman back in the 90s where the uh, the virus monsters were actually released into the real world. So if you remember um, Superman Samurai Cyber Squad, on that show, Gri um, Servo, air quotes up to the mic, Gridman, would fight the virus monsters in the digital world, whereas the anime teaser seems to suggest that they are actually manifesting in the real world. So a little bit different and again similar to that proposed sequel to Gridman that never happened. So hat tip to Sci-Fi Japan for this information. Uh, more on this as it develops. If I hear anything else on this or find it streaming, definitely let you guys know about that here. So that's all the news I have. If you have any news about giant monsters, Kyodai heroes, tokusatsu, anime, whatever you want, go ahead and send it in, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, and we'll report about it here on the show. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to take a look at Son of Godzilla. Love him or hate him, everybody's got something to say about John Byrne. He ruined the X-Man when he left. That John Byrne, he's a sexist pig. The only thing bigger than John Byrne's ego is... Oh, wait, there isn't anything bigger than John Byrne's ego. John Byrne, oh, he, he just draws the greatest butt on Superman. It looks so good. John Byrne is the greatest artist I've ever seen. Wait, who is he? John Byrne's 1986 Man of Steel series gave us the core reimagining of Superman that is still with us today. Third Degree Byrne, a podcast about all things John Byrne. The good, the bad, and the legendary. Join Tim Elliott and Brian Hughes as they look over the nearly five decades body of work of one of the most influential comic book creators in the last 50 years. Third Degree Burn can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com and on iTunes. i got a question, though. I just am curious. Why? Doesn't Green Lantern have any junk? All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. 
Son of Godzilla had its theatrical release on December 16th, 1967 in Japan. It was sold directly to television in the United States in 1969 by the Walter Reed organization and uh, received no theatrical release. This is very similar uh, to the previous year's film, uh, Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, Ibra Horror of the Deep, that also was sold directly to U.S. television and uh, did not get a theatrical release. Our director is Jun Fukuda. Our screenwriter is Shinichi Sekizawa and Kaze Shiba. Our music is by Masaru Sato. Our special effects are by Sadamasa Arakawa with Eji Subaraya supervising. And our producer is Tomoyuki Tanaka. Our synopsis today is adapted from Gojapedia, which you can find at Godzilla.wikia.com. A team of scientists led by Professor Kasumi and his assistant Fujisaki are stationed on Saljel Island in the Pacific, attempting to perfect a weather control system. Their efforts are hampered by the presence of giant praying mantis-like creatures and by the arrival of a nosy reporter named Goro. The first test of the weather control system goes awry when the remote control for the, a radioactive balloon is jammed by an unexplained signal coming from the center of the island. The balloon detonates prematurely, creating a radioactive storm that causes the giant mantises to grow to enormous size. Investigating the mantises, now referred to as Kamakuras, the scientists find the creatures digging an egg out from up underneath a pile of earth. The egg hatches, revealing a baby Godzilla. The scientists realize that the baby's cries to others of its kind were the causes of the interference that ruined their experiment. Soon, Godzilla himself arrives on the island, incidentally stomping the scientist's base as he rushes to defend the infant monster. Godzilla kills two of the Kamakuras. One is smashed to pieces through repeated slams and then uh, incinerated with atomic breath, while the other is knocked out of the sky by Godzilla's atomic breath, though the third mantis flies away before Godzilla can destroy it as well. The baby quickly grows to about half the size of his father, and Godzilla instructs the child on the important monster skills of roaring and using his radioactive breath. At first, the baby has difficulty producing anything more than smoke rings, but Godzilla discovers that stressful situations, such as stomping on the baby's tail, produce a true radioactive blast. Dubbed Manila, the baby comes to the aid of Reiko Matsumiya, a Japanese girl who has been stranded on the island for a decade when she is attacked by the last Kamakuras, but inadvertently awakens Kumonga, a giant spider. The spider attacks the caves where the scientists are hiding, and Manila stumbles into the fray. The scientists decide to complete their experiment, thereby freezing the monsters so they can escape. Godzilla comes to the aid of his offspring, and together the two are able to defeat Kumonga, with Manila finally learning to control his radioactive blast. The scientists complete their experiment, causing a snowstorm to rage on the tropical island. As they escape to a waiting ship, they witness Manila succumbing to the cold. Unable to abandon his offspring, Godzilla shelters his son in his arms, and the two fall unconscious. The scientists realize that the cold has placed the two monsters into a state of hibernation, but they will awaken once the snow melts and live in peace on the island. Yeah, I, I said at the top of the show, this film is somewhat infamous among Godzilla fans. Uh, this is one of those deeply divisive films, as uh, I find as we move into more and more into this social media age, more films tend to be divisive among fans. Uh, but you know, th this, this is another effort from Toho that is a bit lower on the ambitions and on the budget. And as such, it's sort of a mixed effort and a, and a mixed result and has, like I said, a, a detractors and fans, 
uh, throughout the fandom. So let, let's get into the notes and let's see where we end up. Now, the A team for Toho was working on King Kong Escapes at this point. So that continues to trend uh, from Ibra Horror of the Deep of having the younger members of the crew work on this film. As I, you said uh, above, you know, Jun Fukuda was a director uh, instead because Honda was working, uh, Inishiro Honda was working on King Kong Escapes. Uh, Mas Masaru Sato was doing the music because uh, Akira Ifakube was doing King Kong Escapes. And uh, Sadamasa Arakawa was doing the effects because Eji Tsuburaya was again on King Kong Escapes. So it continues kind of that trend of having the, the younger guys work on these films. And it does really give, similar to the last film, a real change of pace feeling from the ones that had come before it, uh, when you had the same crew working on those earlier films in the 60s, there were certain, you know, uh, creative decisions that were made that kind of put those into the same grouping. Well, it's the same thing here with these films into as we get into the mid-60s. Now, screenwriter Shinichi Sekizawa, uh, the story goes that he was bemoaning that he was running out of new ideas for monster movies, and Jun Fukuda was kind of in the same boat. So it was actually producer Tomoyuki Tanaka who concocted the idea of giving Godzilla a kit. Now, the idea was not only to appeal to children, which, you know, makes sense, baby monster appealing to kids, right? But they, uh, Tanaka also wanted to push Godzilla films into the emerging date movie market in Japan. Uh, as movie dates, you know, a, a couple going to the movies on a date, you know, we think of dinner and a movie as a standard date. That was becoming more popular uh, as we were now uh, 20 years removed from the end of World War II, and you know things were becoming a bit more westernized in uh, even the dating scene for the young young adults in Japan. Tanaka's thinking was that teen girls would respond well to a cute baby monster, and so that might be another avenue that they could uh, you know entice uh, a couple on a date to go see their movie. Uh, Tanaka would actually push for the return of a young monster. In the Heisei movies, and it, it was his um, decision to bring baby Godzilla, later little Godzilla, into the Heisei film, starting with Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla in 1993. So obviously Tanaka likes this idea since he came back to it uh, 25 years after the fact. Now much of this film was shot on location in Guam, which works really well in the finished product because there's many scenes of a very lush, dense jungle. It really does a good job of portraying this tropical uh, Pacific Island, and I really do like that. Uh, it, it looks uh, a bit more tropical than the, you know, almost kind of barren island that we got, uh, uh, Island of Lekti in Ibrahor of the Deep. This really looks like this, uh, you know, tropical paradise island. Of course, it's it's not really a paradise as we see, but it certainly looks like one. Now, the film opens with a big storm, and the pilot, the crew on a, on a uh, plane, they see Godzilla very quickly, right at the beginning of the the film and it's it's the suit from monster zero being used as the water effect suit here as this crew receives a strange interference on their radio and then they spot godzilla real quick right at the beginning of the movie so this was interesting that we get godzilla right at the front now this scene is missing from the american tv version so i only saw this scene when i first saw son of godzilla on uh, dvd and watched the japanese version um, now this, uh, like I said, it, it's missing, which seems odd. You'd think this scene, you'd want this in the TV version to grab viewers right away, but it's not there in that Walter Reed cut. Now this cuts very quickly to the island and we get kind of a travelogue sort of opening underneath the opening credits as we see scenes of the island with a very lighthearted, bouncy music. It's, you know, it's very different from what we would traditionally think of as an Ifukube score, but it's also different 
from Sato's own score to Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, which was more of a James Bond type score. This is a very light, fun little score. And it really, again, kind of sells the different tone of this film, even from the, the previous film. Uh, just, you know, again, aiming at a different market and, and really trying to make the film more uh, of an entertaining rather than an exciting uh, approach. So our heroes are introduced. They are a civilian team from the United Nations Agricultural Commission. I, I make note of this only because, once again, our heroes are not military. There, there's no military characters in this film. And this, again, continues uh, what had been the case in, uh, in, in Ibrahora the Deep. Now, in Monster Zero... You know, our, our characters were working for an international space organization, but I always got the feeling that there was a bit of a military background there just because, you know, when, when the Exians attack their base, there there's hardware and, and such military hardware that gets destroyed in that film. Whereas this, again, continues the trend of moving away from a uh, military aspect in these films. And this would come back very strongly in the next film, Destroy All Monsters. But here, there's no military presence, and it really wouldn't make much sense for there to be military presence on this island. So I thought that was that was nice. And it's again, it's a uh, it's 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 the idea we've talked about before of you know international cooperation, which is always a theme in uh, in in Japanese science fiction films. I find to so the idea that these are a group of guys working for the United Nations. They're not working specifically for Japan. They're working for the UN, which I thought was nice. One of the crew. Uh, when bemoaning the heat and the awful conditions, says this isn't a place for human beings, which I thought is a great line, because as I said, Saljel looks like a tropical paradise, but really, it is an awful, awful place. And I feel really bad for these guys that have been stationed here for quite a while and having to deal with all of this awful things going down on this island. Uh, very quickly, we see the small Kamakuras, and I say small, uh, meaning that it's about uh, it probably, I'd say, about seven feet tall at the head. It is uh, the same model, obviously, being used for the other Kamakuras, but uh, being shot to scale with the humans instead of with uh, Godzilla. Now, Kamakuras is this monster's name in Japan, and that is the name that Toho would like us to use for this monster in English now. In, the, in this version of the film, both the Walter Reed U.S. dub, the original dub, and the international dub that is available on uh, the DVD of, of this film, he, he, this, these monsters are called Jamantis. And Jamantis was this monster's name in the U.S. for decades. You know, that, that is its name uh, based on that Walter Reed dub from the television version. And then that, I want to say that reappears in uh, Godzilla's Revenge, the American version of All Monsters Attack as well. Now, I think so. I'm trying to think. Does he even get named in that, to be honest? But Gamantis was this monster's name. So I think it's interesting that on even the international dub, they called him Gamantis. So they must have really didn't... Toa must not have been confident in Western audiences pronouncing Kamakuras correctly. So they gave him a more Westernized name. It, it's interesting because his name kind of puts it in line with Mothra, a monsterized version of the type of bug that it is, you know, Gemantis, Giant Mantis. But, I mean, so I always like the Gemantis name, but I, I refer to him as Kamakuras just because that, that is his name. Now, the first Kamakuras we see is a man-sized giant bug in the vein of the Mega Neuron from Rodan. So I thought that was an interesting callback because, you know, we, we think about Japanese giant monsters as being hundreds of feet tall, right? We think about them being daikaiju. But a man-sized bug is still a giant bug, and it's still just as gross and nasty, and there's a more personal aspect of horror to that 
uh, that you can get from something this, because you can interact and pick up a man and you know, drag him off or whatever. Now, we don't get that here. The man-sized Kamakuras is more of a, a pest than anything else, and they, you know, shoo it away from the, from the camp, but they're being menaced by it. This is what I was referring to earlier. Sol Gel, even before the radioactive storm, at least, at least has giant mantises, if not more, because we'll talk about that in a little bit, about some of the other uh, potential uh, fauna on this island. So uh, now Kamakuras is uh, a marionette and the everything I've always read is that the Kamakuras marionettes were very difficult to operate and took a lot of different people moving the different parts, but it looks really good on the screen. I, I am always impressed by how good Kamakuras as a marionette monster, a, by marionette, I mean a wire operated puppet uh, for the effect looks on screen. I mean, it's got very thin legs and a very larger upper body, so it really has the proportions of a mantis, and it's very insectoid, really well-looking, uh, well-designed, and, and well-executed monster. And using him as a marionette, it actually gives him a good illusion of life, uh, considering that there's no traditional suitmation performance uh, that we would normally associate with with a, a Daikaiji film, I think they come across really well. And it's one of the aspects of this film that works way better than I think most people would initially give it credit for until they sit down and, and really look at it critically. I also really like the choice to give him a kind of a, a rusty red skin tone. It stands out very well against the lush green scenery of the of the island. So that red and green has a nice contrast to it, which I think is a, a good touch. Most mantises tend to be green uh, or ranging more to brown. I don't know that I've ever seen a red mantis in real life, but uh, Kamakuras looks quite nice as one. Now, Goro is dropped onto the island via parachute, and uh, this is the impetus to get properly introduced to the cast. Now, Goro is played by Akira Kubo, who uh, had been previously for Toho in Gorath and Matango, but we know him best as the inventor Tetsuo from Monster Zero. Now, it's an interesting turn from comic relief a couple of years earlier to now being, uh, you know, a sort of a hero, not, uh, not a square-jawed type of hero, but certainly one of the heroes of the film. Kubo would go on to appear in Destroy All Monsters and Space Amoeba, and then many years later would pop up in a cameo in the uh, Heisei film Gamera Guardian of the Universe. Now, here in Son of Godzilla, he plays a more serious character than Tetsuo, but as I said, still an unlikely hero. Now, Kubo's got uh, a boyish sort of charm, especially uh, in, in the look of his face and his, the way he grins and such, which I think helps him a lot. And he does have some childish comic relief moments uh, in this film. Early on, he crosses his arms because he's stubbornly refusing to eat or do anything until the rest of the crew will allow him to get the story of uh, their activities on the island. And then later we see him stewing vegetables in the laundry water. And, uh, you know, so he's got some some moments of, of levity of a, uh, in the film. Um, but what I also like is that despite this, despite that he's sort of a comedy hero, he's also shown to be resourceful and brave in the face of not only the, the monsters on the island, but some of the other things, you know, he runs out later into the, uh, into the radio and into the, not into the storm per se, but out onto the island to try to rescue Reiko and, you know, puts himself at great risk to try and uh, help her. So I, I like the character of Garo. He's, he's a, a well-rounded type of character here. Now, Professor Kasumi is played by Tadeo Takashimi, another Toho regular. Now, he's best known as the lead character Sakurai back in King Kong vs. Godzilla, but he also appeared in Atragon, Frankenstein Conquers the World, and War of the Gargantuas. Now, the professor 
is an interesting depiction to me because he's depicted as a very driven, dedicated man, very dedicated to his work, like we would expect a good Japanese scientist in a science fiction film to be. Now, he pushes his men very hard and really seems only to care about the experiment. Now, in, in, fair, in fairness, he also pushes himself very hard. So he is, you know, doesn't ask anything of the crew that he doesn't ask of himself. Now, in his book, A Critical History and Filmography of Toho's Godzilla, Godzilla series by da uh, David Callett, who I've, I've mentioned before, and it's a fantastic book from McFarlane uh, uh, Press. If you, if you ever get a chance to pick that up, I highly recommend it. Well, Callett argues that the fact that the professor is vindicated at the end of the film and his hard driving approach, which is to say the experiment is a success. They are able to change the weather on the island that, uh, that, that Professor Kasumi is a counterexample to the more common scientist tropes that we see in Western science fiction films, which very often feature the scientists being humbled or otherwise brought down due to their gall to, you know, tampering God's domain. Uh, now, Cowett goes a bit into this saying that because um, uh, the Godzilla films were written by non-Christians for a non-Christian audience. The idea of tampering in God's domain does not apply as much. I, I can see, I can see that. I would, I would counter by saying there were a decent amount of Christians in Japan by this time because the swing of Christianity has been on the upswing in Japan since the uh, end of World War II. I don't know what the exact numbers are, but I think Cowett makes a really good point here. Uh, you know, just looking at the the nature of Western scientists in science fiction movies where they are often the reason for the monster being released and then the military has to come in and be the ones to save the day. Whereas a film like this where the scientist is, is you know, yes, there is a, there, the experiment does help create the monsters, but ultimately uh, the scientist being true to his beliefs is, the, is, is, is shown to be the right choice because he's right. You know, ultimately he is right in, in sticking to his guns about the experiment. So Takashima has an interesting performance that I actually like. It's a very kind of hard-nosed performance, and he's something of an obstacle for Goro, but uh, ultimately he's depicted as one of the heroes. Kasumi's right-hand man, Fujisaki, is played by uh, my longtime favorite, Akihiko Harada, who almost always plays a doctor, professor, or scientist in these films, and thus is right in his element. Uh, Harada, of course, played Dr. Serizawa way back in Gojira, and just showed up the year before as the eyepatch-wearing captain of Red Bamboo in Ibra Horror of the Deep, which was, I remember we talked about, uh, was kind of against type for him. Well, here he's back being a, a scientist, so right back in line there. Uh, there's a line from Kasumi talking about uh, to Goro about their weather experiments and the need for secrecy, and he talks about that weather could be used as a weapon. I think this is a really, you know, this speaks again to the to the, being the mid-60s, like the Cold War aspects of this. You know, Japan has always been kind of in a weird place just because geographically they're so close to the, the Ch Chinese and the Soviet Union, but they were allies with the United States. So, you know, that, that was always something that Japan was in the middle of that. And if, God forbid, there had been a nuclear war, the Soviets would have likely attacked Japan because uh, they were an American ally. So the, you know, the idea that the need for secrecy, because if the wrong people got a hold of this, what could they do with a device that could change the weather? They could, you know, freeze a nation out or destroy all their crops. So I do like that, that it specifically is speaking out against military applications of the technology, which, of course, is a long running theme here in the Godzilla series. So I thought that was a nice use of that in just one line to kind of give the idea for, you know, why they need to do this on an isolated island and all the secrecy and all that. 
This leads us directly into the weather experiment itself. Uh, as part of this, we get what we see of the miniature set, which is a small headquarters, and then they've got these large towers set in various places on the island with uh, atomizers, I guess, uh, on top, or vaporizers, I suppose, where they are spraying out a, a yellow mist. And they are specifically say that they are spraying out silver iodine. Now, at first I thought, okay, this is just some techno babble, right? Not so. I looked this up. Silver iodine is commonly used in cloud seeding experiments, the idea of seeding a cloud to make it rain. So in this context, it makes sense that they would be dousing the atmosphere with silver iodine in an attempt to change the weather. So that was a real nice surprise for me, that it's not just some random stuff. It's a legitimate thing that might be used in a weather experiment. Also, taking it one step further, silver iodine is a yellow powder. So the mist being this yellowish mist is right in line with that. So it's a pretty good depiction of silver iodine being used in a weather experiment. Uh, of course, the experiment uh, does not go well. This brings the radioactive storm. And the storm is depicted in uh, a few scenes, kind of a montage, seeing the, the rain and wind lashing at the island. We see lightning striking a tree and bursting it uh, at the seams. I'm always, I'm always uh, interested in the depiction of storms in films from Asia, just because you can think about the Pacific and the really rough Pacific storms that you might get. Uh, that's a very real thing to uh, folks living in Japan or even in Korea or on, uh, elsewhere on the mainland. So I, I like this, and it's, it always has a certain authenticity because you get the feeling that uh, these folks that live off the Pacific like that know what these nasty storms look like. And so it's, even though it's a short scene, I, I think it's well done. Now, after the storm, we get introduced to the big Kamakuras, all three of them, which is which is nice. Now, once we're introduced to them, they are staged in such a way that the foliage is used to hide them somewhat. Again, that red skin has a high contrast against a green, but it does a nice job not only of kind of, you know, keeping them a little bit hidden and, you know, showing them moving amongst it, but also, again, again, changes the scale. When we first saw the first smaller Kamakuras, he was walking at the bottom of the trees, and now they're peeking above the tops of the trees. So it's a very subtle sort of thing to suggest scale, even though it's accomplished with the exact same models. Uh, now that there's there's the one, or excuse me, the three Kamakuras models, but they're just by changing the scale of what they're presented against, you instantly change the size of the characters. So that's a nice depiction. We also get some optical compositions of humans in the foreground with the Kamakuras interacting with the scale trees and other foliage in the background. Uh, this is similar to some shots we got in, again, the year before in Ibra Horror of the Deep, showing monsters in the background, humans in the foreground. Um, there's some interesting sounds associated with the Kamakuras now that they're at their large size. Their roar is Ibra's roar just sped up, and that's... It, and it, when it speeds up, the tone gets a little bit higher. It's uh, very, and I think I talked about this with Ibra, I, I like that cry because what sound does a does a crab make? What sound does a mantis make, right? So it's, it's a sound that does not sound mammalian or reptilian. It, it sounds alien almost, which suits an insectoid monster. The, the sound that's, to me, more interesting is the sound of their movement, which is this grinding, chitinous sort of sound. Almost, you can imagine the, the chitin of their exoskeletons grinding against each other as they're moving. It's this creepy sort of sound that you know that they probably had all the sound engineers trying different things out to something that sounded kind of creepy. And I always associate that sound 
with the Kamakuras more than their screeches, because that's the sound of them stalking through the woods. And it's a great sound effect. It's really well applied here. And this also continues a trend from the, um, the, the last few films, really, of having inhuman monsters. You know, we have not had Godzilla fight a humanoid monster basically since King Kong at this point, unless you count Rodan, because, you know, we had Mothra and you know, the various forms of Mothra, then King Ghidorah, who is sort of humanoid, but not really because he doesn't have arms, and then Ibra, and now the Kamakuras. So it's continuing the divide between the humanized, uh, anthropomorphized depiction of Godzilla and the distinctly uh, inhuman, non-anthropomorphized depiction of the enemies that he fights. And the Kamakuras are a good example of that. We go to the Kamakuras breaking open the big egg. Uh, Goro is a witness to this. And he says, it's a baby Godzilla. But yeah, I, I doubt anyone would have made that logical leap to see what comes out of this egg and say, look, it looks just like Godzilla, other than it has a head, two arms, two legs, and a tail. Uh, <laughs> uh, Manila, who for years was called Minya. And uh, that's mostly how I refer to him. Toho would like us to call him Manila, like mini Godzilla. Uh, is portrayed by a rubber puppet in this scene and looks exactly like that. He is not helped by a couple of times when Kamakuras will smack him with uh, their pincers and you can see the rubber bowing and flexing in. Uh, not a great depiction. And this will become a running theme in this film that some of the special effects are actually quite nice and some are not so nice. Uh, this leads to uh, Godzilla coming to the island. I like Godzilla's landing. Uh, we see this huge swell of water building up as he gets closer to the island, almost like a tidal wave is coming, and then Godzilla bursts through, which is nice. I know uh, my friend Duncan always would complain that water doesn't doesn't scale. So uh, a creative use of it, you know, always is, is to me a better choice than just, you know, not bothering with it. So here, I, I thought it was well done to have the water kind of swell up to show him approaching the island. Now, this leads to some oddball continuity, as you sometimes get, because Godzilla's body changes drastically from the water scene to when he shows up on land. Uh, Musuko Goji, as this new suit is called, it's bigger and bulkier than the last couple of suits, has a really bizarre head, uh, gives Godzilla kind of close-set, forward-set eyes in an attempt to further humanize him. Uh, the larger build of the suit is designed to give uh, Godzilla a larger shape next to Manila, making him look paternal. You know, making him look like the, the adult and the child, right? Um, of course, the suit used in the water, as I said, was the Monster Zero suit. So the head and the body are, are vastly different in size as the, the shape of the head, uh, the position of the eyes, the, the, the overall bulk of the body, the shoulders especially. So it, it's just kind of, I mean, if, you, if you're looking at it, it's kind of jarring, to be honest, going from one to the other. And it's because it's such a difference. If, you know, if, if we were talking about suits that were a little bit closer, like, say, for instance, um, the suit used in Monster Zero and the suit put together for Ibra Horror of the Deep, they're close enough that it's, it's, it's okay. Uh, here, it, it's, like I said, it's pretty obvious. Now, the depiction of Godzilla as more paternal and larger, it works with Fakut, Jun Fakuda's approach, which was to treat Godzilla and Manila as humans, specifically, rather than monsters. Now, of course, we go back and we remember that Jun Fakuda had said that he never thought there should have been a sequel to Gojira in the first place. So personally, I suspect that he was trying to make his work as different 
from that original film as possible and, you know, saying that, well, if I have to do it, I'm not going to ape it. I'm going to do my own thing with it and move it in a different direction. Um, now, there's some fallout from this larger suit. Being that, uh, you know, famed Godzilla suit actor Haro Nakajima only plays Godzilla in the water scenes, which was, that again, the, the aforementioned suit from Monster Zero. Now, he was not physically large enough to work in this new, larger, heavier suit. So uh, actor and baseball player Seji Onaka was cast as Godzilla, but he only finished about a fourth of the scenes that were required before he injured his hand playing baseball and got replaced by Nakajima's protege, uh, Yu Sakita. Now, Sakita had portrayed Ibera the year before, as well as playing um, both Mechanicong and Gorosaurus in King Kong Escapes and played Sanda in War of the Gargantua. So he had already been getting... Uh, some work with Toho, as I said, uh, he was he worked with Nakajima quite a bit, so he was a natural to step in. He was a little bit bigger than Nakajima, and uh, allowed them to to move forward with the shooting. And the fight with the Kamakuras, as I said earlier, really shows off the varying quality of the special effects in this film. The Kamakuras, all three of them look great. We see them out in the open, kind of a rocky outcropping where this fight takes place. They move like bugs. You know, they have that all the limbs kind of move at once because they're marionettes, so you can coordinate it. They're menacing. They're very effectively done for what are essentially monsters way out of Godzilla's weight class. These guys are so far below him that even with three of them, they are outnumbered. You know, they've got the numbers advantage and they're still the underdogs. Now, taking that and putting a pin in it, Godzilla looks absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, you really have to wonder, what would this film look like? How would this film have been received by the fandom if it had a more traditional Godzilla suit, if they had used that Monster Zero suit, even the, with the modified head from Sea Monster, what would that have looked like visually? Would it have been more appealing? Because Godzilla just, he's like I said, he doesn't move all that well because the suit is so big and he's got this head that's just bananas and it, it hurts the overall depiction. Now, all that said, Godzilla does get some really good moves in. He actually picks up and body slams one of the Kamakuras over and over and over and then burns it to death with his atomic uh, breath. And then one of them is charging at him through the air and he blasts it out of the sky with atomic breath. And it's like, ouch, flaming death, man. There's no no getting around that. We, we uh, and, and nice touch when the Kamakuras are flying. Their wings actually flap up and down, which is... Uh, I don't know how their wings flapping that in the way they do. They're kind of accordion up and down, how it would generate forward thrust. But, you know, wings in a Daikaiju movie. What are you going to do? Um, so two of the Kamakuras are taken out quite quickly uh, by Godzilla. So you see that, again, they are not in his class uh, of, of monsters. Now, after the fight, Manila acts very pathetic, crying for help. And, you know, this leads to Reiko grabbing a big fruit and... Um, throwing it into his mouth uh, in a scene that I can only imagine was aimed at the aforementioned teen girls who would be seeing this movie on a date. Um, this leads to Godzilla coming back, Reiko getting out of Dodge, and Minya climbing onto Godzilla's tail for a ride, which admittedly is extremely cute. And that is the only thing, really, that Manila brings to this film is that there is some cuteness associated with him, which I know, I know, makes some Daikaiju fans... Uh, you know, uh, roll their eyes uh, theatrically and snort derisively, but that's where we are as far as this film.
Now, shortly after this scene, we get a quick a quick scene of the lone remaining Kamakuras attacking the HQ. Again, a showcase for the very nice work on the difficult-to-manipulate marionette. Uh, not much really comes of this. It is a nice little effect scene. Again, uh, kind of a callback to earlier when we got the small Kamakuras threatening the base. Now we get the big one. So a little more Kamakuras is welcome in this film since he is uh, well uh, executed and depicted. We later would catch up with uh, Manila and Godzilla. Uh, Manila is playing with Godzilla's tail as Godzilla is uh, is taking a nap and uh, he is hopping over Godzilla's tail as it swings, um, you know, lazily back and forth. As a father, I can relate to Godzilla by this point in the film. He just wants to take a nap and the kid just keeps bugging him. It's like, please let me just take my nap. Please. We will do whatever you want after nap. But no, it doesn't work out that way. Now, the juvenile Manila is played by a small actor, Little Man Marchand. And uh, he's able to do quite a lot of rolls and tumbles in this heavy suit. And that was my understanding, the main reason why he was cast, because he was physically able to do this in this uh, limiting suit, was able to do all the this tumbling work, which is is actually quite nice. It's, he looks very spry, considering. And uh, there's some nice slapstick comedy had from that. The fact that I just said there was nice slapstick comedy in a Godzilla movie may trigger some people, understand that. But, you know, given taking it on its own merits... It's a pretty good performance. Um, now, Manila himself at this stage is designed as a cross between Godzilla and a human baby. That's what they were going for. The rounder face, the pudgier arms, the pudgier belly, pudgier legs. Um, ultimately, to me, looks more like a reptilian Pillsbury Doughboy than either Godzilla or a human. So take that as you will. Uh, this scene ends with Manila throwing a tantrum and being dragged off by his tail by a, uh, you know, frustrated Godzilla. Again, funny, but we, ha we have come so far from even just three years prior <laughs> in Godzilla versus the thing when Godzilla was a merciless killing machine to here he is, you know, stoically dealing with his, his uh, toddler son's tantrums on a Pacific island. It's like things change fast. You got you to gotta just strap in and hold on because otherwise you're not going to keep up. As we move forward, Reiko tells the other scientist, Amy Allen, about the Spiga. Now, the Spiga, of course, is the giant spider Kumanga. Now, similar to the Kamakuras and Jamantis names, Kumanga was called Spiga in this film, and that was his American name for years and years. And again, the international dub on the DVD calls him Spiga which is, is very odd. I would have thought that they wanted it Kumanga, but the, I'm, uh, the international dub was what was created by Toho in 1967, and perhaps they thought, again, that Kumanga would not be a name a Western audiences would associate with a giant spider. So Spiga, spider giant. Okay, it makes, uh, you know, it, it, it leads. This does beg the question, did no one vet this frigging island? Okay, I mean, we've got giant mantises, We've got a girl hiding out here. We've got a gigantic spider. And there's no indication that Spiga was mutated by the storm because, you know, Reiko doesn't say, oh, he's gotten bigger. So there was always this gigantic spider on this island. The UN did not really do their homework before sending these poor saps to this uh, Pacific death trap and uh, stranding them there with no way to get out. So you know, next time, let's do a little homework, please, guys. A little forethought, you know, uh, an ounce of prevention's worth a pound of cure and all that stuff. At this point, Reiko, who had been kind of hiding on the island and Goral had been uh, spotting her every now and again, she is fully integrated with the uh, the rest of the group. She is actually, we see her kind of in a sarong earlier on, you know, standard tropical island girl uh, attire for 1967. But by this point, she's dressed as a Westerner. She's actually wearing Goro's 
um, red Hawaiian shirt. It's tucked into a neatly into a pair of khaki pants. Her hair is tied back. So she really looks like a Westerner. She doesn't even she doesn't even look so much like a Japanese girl. She really looks like an American girl uh, as far as her fashion sense. Now, admittedly, um, there is not a lot of uh, women's clothing on the island since the team was naturally all men. So making do with what you have. But it's an interesting change that she goes from being, you know, clearly having uh, air quotes up to the mic gone native, despite she is a, uh, a Japanese uh, uh, character, to looking like a Western girl uh, in the span of uh, uh, story-wise a couple of days. It's, it's, a, it's a nice look. Uh, Reiko is played by uh, Beverly Maeda, who uh, mostly did non-science fiction work for Toho, including one of the young guy comedies. She doesn't have any other sci-fi credits uh, that I could find on her IMDb page. Now, the character is named Seiko in the Japanese version. Um, you know, kind of a minor change, Reiko versus Seiko. The most famous scene from this film, at least the most well-known as far as I'm concerned, is Manila studying with Godzilla. Um, this is the scene with Manila shooting the atomic smoke rings. Poof, poof, poof. And then Godzilla stepping on his tail and that shocking Manila into shooting the big atomic breath and getting all excited and all that. Um, again, very cute scene. You have to accept it for what it is and not blame it for what it is not. You can't say, well, this is stupid, you know, when we've already watched an hour of this film. You can't then point to this and say, this is dumb. This is in line with the rest of the story, the rest of the film. So you have to just, you know, now whether you like it or not, that's fine. Everyone's entitled to an opinion on whether or not they like a film or not. But I don't, I don't personally, I don't understand the idea of criticizing something for not doing what it wasn't setting out to do. This wasn't setting out to be Gojira. This wasn't even setting out to be Godzilla versus The Thing. This was setting out to be a lighthearted romp, and so we get lighthearted rompy scenes like this. Um, but again, just a classic bit for Manila. Probably the most classic bit he ever involved with Godzilla stepping on his tail and then his excited squeals as he manages to shoot the atomic breath. When the men come down with a fever, uh, Reiko suggests they use the hot red water. Uh, now, the hot red water is the latest in a long line of magical liquids in this series. Uh, Sekizawa certainly uh, you know, had his tropes, and he by gum, he was sticking to him. Um, all I can say is at least it's not a strange juice this time out. It's specifically a water and not where they got to gather some berries and crush them out. Uh, as Reiko is out collecting the water, she ends up being menaced by, by Kamakuras, much like Kumi Mizuno ended up being menaced by Godzilla in uh, the previous film, in Ibra Horde of the Deep. So, uh, again, it's it's these are... They're producing these films one a year, you know, and again, this was the B picture for Toho again. So there's certain elements that, you know, potentially could be recycled. And this sequence feels like a recycled scene. Now, it's well done as far as the opticals and, you know, the integration of the special effects uh, plates and the live action plates. But it is, you know, not a not all that different from what was done the year before. Uh, this leads to the full reveal of Spiga, a.k.a. Kumanga, another marionette monster a much larger marionette monster because first off, he's got more limbs and he's overall larger, uh, both on footprint and then overall size than uh, the Kamakuras. Uh, this is an ugly, menacing, nasty looking spider. He really looks like an enemy. You know, the Kamakuras obviously was an enemy monster, but you get the idea that uh, Kuamanga could really hold his own. And we'll see that played out as we, as we, the rest of the film uh, spools out here. Uh, the webs look like industrial silly string 
and they're really thick because we see them shooting the webs a lot and they look a little bit thicker than the silk shot by Mothra. I don't know if that's intentional or just perhaps the way the effect was achieved here. Uh, we also see that it interacts more with people. So you see they look really thick, almost like, the, again, like flat rope when they're interacting with like Goro and, and Reiko. I've very often seen some complaints about the fact that Kuamanga shoots web from his mouth uh, on, and not from his rear end. There actually is at least one type of spider, the spitting spider, that does shoot web from its mouth. So I'm willing to chalk it up to that and move along quickly. Uh, like Kamakura's Kuamanga was very hard to operate. Uh, I've seen comments saying that it required two or three men per leg to try and manipulate this thing all at once, and I believe it. Uh, in addition to the uh, full marionette, we also get a full-size leg, which is just, I'm guessing, like the front half of the leg where it can reach into a cave and, and menace people, and we see it trying to reach in and get at the scientists. A very, very much in line with kind of the full-size props that we'd think of more in a Western film. But we do get occasionally in a, in a Japanese film. We'd see this much later in Godzilla 1984 with a full-size foot prop. It makes a very interesting sound, which is like, I've always called ch 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 and I read it as choo-choo, like a squeaky sound. But it's it sounds like a, you know, it sounds almost like a hydraulic press a little bit. Again, like Kamakoras, like Ibera, like Mothra, a, a sound that does not associate mentally with either reptilian or mammalian sound. Definitely sounds alien. Um, the Kamakuras, as I said, they were lightweights. Kuomanga is a legitimate foe for Godzilla. He looks tough, and he, he, he lives up to that in the balance of the film. I'd like to take a moment right now to recognize Goro has an awesome pair of mid-60s stripey swim trunks. Just going to leave it at that and move on. Uh, we then go to uh, Kuomanga fighting Manila. Manila is quickly, quickly uh, webbed up and taken out of the fight. The Kamakuras that had been menacing Reiko, it, it, uh, Kuomanga turns on it. It quickly gets attacked, it's webbed up, and then stabbed with Kuomanga's stinger that jabs out from uh, around his mouth. And, the, and Kamakuras is killed. The light fades out of his eyes and it is killed. Kuomanga is, he's, he's aggressive and belligerent. This is a nasty spider. You get the idea that the Kamakuras might be just acting on instinct and they don't have, um, you know, motivations beyond that. But Kumunga is a predator. Anything that's nearby, he's going to try and web it up and, and kill it, with the one would imagine, to eat it. That's what, you know, spiders would do. And a spider this size obviously must need to eat something. So he is a, like I said, he, he really comes off. And they use a, having him kill the Kamakuras uh, so directly instantly relates that, okay, this guy's about as strong as Godzilla. If he's able to, Godzilla was able to take out the Kamakura so easily, so was Kumunga. Godzilla arrives quickly. The music gives this fight a different feel than it would have had in a film scored by Ifakube. It's a much more adventurous sound rather than what I would call a rousing sound from Ifakube. It's more of a foreboding sound than an Ifakube track that might, I might describe as menacing. It's, it's, it's hard to really kind of put into words, but it really does make a difference in how the fight plays out and how the fight is staged. It's a back and forth with Kumanga using his webbing, Godzilla using his atomic breath. Um, they manage to hit Kumanga with the atomic breath, and he appears to be dead. And so Godzilla leans in to examine him and gets stabbed in the eye. Ouch. Just ouch. Now, they don't show it. It's all implied. We see Godzilla grabbing his eye. 
in pain, but man, that's nasty. Like I said, Kumunga's not fooling around. Um, as the scientists continue their experiment, the snow starts to fall. Now, we have had snow before. Uh, the end of Godzilla Raids again features a snowstorm. And we did get some ice uh, when Godzilla blinks out of the iceberg in King Kong's, uh, King Kong vs. Godzilla. But this is the first time we've had a snowy fight scene for Between Any Monsters, plus it's in color. And so we've got our, we've had this lush green, this deep green color palette for our setting for most of the film. And now we've got the white snow introduced. So visually, it's very interesting as a backdrop for this fight uh, with Kumanga. So it, it helps, again, as I said, the music gave it a different feel. This visual change gives this fight a different feel from the, the final battles that had taken place in the series leading up to this point. Kumanga meets his end from a double-team atomic breath, and he also, much like the two Kamakuras earlier, burst into flames. So, flaming death once again reigns supreme on Gel Island. Uh, following the defeat of Kumanga, the snowfall continues. Uh, the tropical paradise, which we have come to know over the last 80 minutes or so, is, is transformed into a frigid wasteland. This is a great use of just decorating the set because it's the same sets, the same rocks. This is now they've gone in and sprayed the snow on it and they've added the snowfall uh, from off screen, you know, the, the effects snow. And Manila is absolutely pathetic as you can see him clearly, uh, 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 his body temperature must be dropping because he's getting slower and he drops to the ground and he's crawling and crying out for help. And Godzilla, once again, depicted as the devoted parent coming back and, you know, picking him up and wrapping his arms around him so that they can try and stay warm together. Um, the the scientists are rescued by a U.N. submarine. Um, just, okay, sure. <laughs> no problem with that. Uh, I do like submarines. But as they are waiting to be rescued, Goro assures Reiko that, and not only assures Reiko, but also assures us, the audience, that the monsters will hibernate and be just fine. So with all the enemy monsters defeated, the experiment to success, and Godzilla and Manila together and safe, I mean, hibernating, but still safe, it's a happy ending all around. Which is, again, makes perfect sense. If Tanaka said, go make a movie to go see on a date, you don't want to have any sort of a downbeat ending. We've got a happy ending for everyone involved. So all the good guys win at the end of Son of Godzilla. Now, as much as Sea Monster last year was a change of pace this film is a hard turn in a new direction for the series and as i said really divisive among fans some fans of which i number myself enjoy its goofy charm it they said it, it has a lot of aspects to it that work even if they're not the most serious whereas other fans really dislike this film they, they don't like the the change of tone even from uh, the more kind of Bondian's adventure of Sea Monster, this, this obvious kitty slash family slash date movie fair really turns a lot of people off. Um, Manila is a bizarre idea, frankly, and the execution of the character is lacking. He never looks like anything other than rubber. He never gives, even with Little Man Manchon flipping and flopping around, you don't get the idea that he's a monster. You're never intellectually convinced of his monsterhood, I guess. Uh, the new Godzilla suit is not well designed. One of the weakest in the entire series, frankly, would only ever pop up again as, um, as a water effects suit, uh, several years later in Godzilla versus Gigan. And it looks just as strange in that film, as you can imagine. Now, all that having been said, there are some really, really well done and impressive enemy monsters, which work way better 
than they have any right to in this film. The Kamakuras and Kuamunga are fantastically realized for marionettes, and they really give the illusion of life that the Godzilla suits do not in this film. We have great scenery, a wonderful setting of this tropical island, which really uses that location shooting in Guam to its advantage to sell us on this tropical, air quotes up to the mic, paradise that's really more of a hellhole that, that all these men and Reiko and these monsters are trapped on. And I like that. It uses the setting really well. If we're going to make a lower budget film set on an island, embrace that island feeling. As I said, very summery, warm temperature movie. So that's why we're doing it in the summer. And the cast is fun. We've got a lot of Toho regulars. Everybody seems to be enjoying themselves. Uh, you know, there, there's not, there's a little bit of conflict among the cast, but not really. Mostly the cast are here to move things along. So it, it's, it's all these actors that we enjoy seeing and, you know, seeing them again, all working together. Um, all those things work in the film's favor. I like this film and I am consistently entertained by it, even if it is not in the same echelon as the other entries. I would still rank this as superior to some of the later entries which are going to follow it, and we'll see those as we get to them. That for all the inane, crazy, oddball stuff in Son of Godzilla, it still works better than some of the films that follow it. So, you know, if you haven't seen Son of Godzilla, I recommend giving it a rewatch. So if you haven't watched Son of Godzilla in a while, maybe you saw it as a kid, you think, ah, I'm not going to like that, give it a try. It might surprise you. It's, uh, it, it's, it's better, I think, than its reputation, even if it's not one of the top flight Godzilla films. Now, I know what you're saying, Luke, I want to buy this on DVD. <laughs> Good luck. The Sony TriStar DVD has been out of print for years and routinely fetches prices above 70 bucks from resellers, both on Amazon and eBay. Now, that DVD, if you can find it, features the international dub, which is what I've referred to here, which is inferior to the Walter Reed dub. They're very similar from a script, but the voice acting is not as good. The TV version uh, is, is much more in, in entertaining, even if it's slightly different, a few cuts here and there. I ended up buying a cheap VHS copy, the Video Treasures CST Entertainment release from 1987, which is a very well-known and common a VHS release that has the Walter Reed dub. If you see the, the artwork, you'll probably recognize it if you're uh, my age or older. You've probably seen this VHS floating around. There are no plans that I am aware of for it to be re-released anytime soon, which is very sad. So good hunting with that. Um, now, if you go on archive.org, you could probably find that Walter Reed version if you look hard enough. I'm just saying. Hat tip to Rich for that one. So what do you folks think? Do you like Son of Godzilla? Do you dislike Son of Godzilla? You know, what do you think about Manila, Kamakuras, Kuamunga, any of them? Send me an email, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, and we'll discuss it here on the show. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. past, a monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, 
King of the Monsters. Alright, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Marvel's Godzilla number 20 was cover dated March of 1979 and was released on or about December 12, 1978. Information comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics at DCIndexes.com. Our cover is by Herb Trimpey and Bob McCloud, and it depicts the uh, somewhat still shrunken down King of the Monsters uh, surrounded by the first family of Marvel Comics, the Fantastic Four. And he is getting clobbered by Ben Grimm. Uh, Sue Storm is shooting little force field bubbles at him. Reed Richards is stretching around him, and the Human Torch flies and is shooting him in the back of the head with a fire blast. They are fighting in a museum. You can tell by the velvet ropes around them. And then we see the uh, uh, assembled fossil of a Barontosaurus or a Patasaurus, another long uh, sauropod uh, dinosaur. And we also see uh, some display uh, tablets behind them and a display case with the skull of a triceratops. Our writer is Doug Mench. Our penciler is Herb Trimpey. Inker is Daniel Green. The letterer is Elaine Heinel. Colorist is George Roussos. Our editor is Al Milgram. The story is entitled A Night at the Museum, and our synopsis is adapted from marvel.wikia.com. With Godzilla roaming through the streets of New York City at risk of going back to its full size any moment, the S.H.I.E.L.D. Godzilla squad continues to track the beast until they can contain it without hurting innocence. Meanwhile, at the Baxter Building, Ben Grimm, the ever-loving blue-eyed thing, sees media reports of the creature's travel through New York, and Reed Richards, a.k.a. Mr. Fantastic, decides that this is a case for the Fantastic Four to investigate. With the Godzilla squad having lured the monster into the American Museum of Natural History, the group are then joined by the Fantastic Four, who offer to subdue the monster and help them find a humane way to end Godzilla's menace. Despite warnings not to engage Godzilla, the monster, now 20 feet tall, tail chops Ben Grimm, who retaliates along with Johnny Storm, the famous Human Torch. Battling the monster, the thing then knocks Godzilla into a giant shark tank. Next issue, more of the fabulous Fantastic Four and, would you believe, Devil Dinosaur? Okay, uh... Really strong ties to the Marvel Universe, obviously, in this issue, with the Fantastic Four appearing. Um, ironically, you know, we had a similar situation towards the tail end of Shogun Warriors, where the Fantastic Four guest starred right at the very end of that book. So, let's get right into our notes. The cover, as I said, has the Fantastic Four surrounding Godzilla and fighting him. Reminds me, structurally, of the cover to Fantastic Four number one, where, if you recall, it's one of the Mole Man's monsters bursting out of the ground, and uh, the team is surrounding... Uh, that monster. Now, it, it, part of this, just the fact that they're surrounding and fighting a monster is, is to me, a little bit of an homage, but also the fact that we're seeing Ben Grimm from behind. That uh, cover to Fantastic Four number one is very odd in that we, we don't see all the heroic characters straight on. We see them from different angles, and we see that here. We've got, we're looking right at Ben's back. Uh, Sue is kind of half-turned to us, and then uh, Reed and Johnny are facing the reader because they're behind and trying to flank Godzilla. I like this cover. It has a very purple, like, top two-thirds, because that's, I guess, the uh, the ceiling of the room they're in at the uh, Museum of Natural History. But I like the layout of it. 
and I like the use of the red from the tail of Johnny's uh, flight path to kind of break up the purple a little bit right around the logo. I think the FF looked good, and it definitely is indicative of the story that's being told. And it, I think this would pop off the shelf, seeing the bright blue of the Fantastic Four contrasted against the dark green of uh, Godzilla and just the odd juxtaposition of uh, the superhero characters against Godzilla. Turning to page one, uh, this is the splash page. It shows Godzilla from the rear as he's walking down the street and all the traffic is honking at him and people are running out of the way. Fairly staid splash page as far as this series goes. Um, you know, Godzilla's only seven feet tall here, and this does a good job of showing his height, but he only stays seven feet tall for this page as he begins growing to uh, 20 feet tall immediately after this. So it, it does a good job of showing that scale, but then that scale is not used for the rest of the story. So I thought that was a little odd. Uh, the girl on the left-hand page who is running away, her knee is bending in a very odd way. I'm not sure what exactly uh, the anatomy is there. It almost looks like a cartoon arm more so than a knee. So uh, I don't know if um, maybe Trippy got a little a little tucked in here in the corner or maybe the anatomy just got uh, out of hand a little bit. It doesn't. It looks a little strange. It took me by surprise trying to figure out what it was at first. And one of the guys that is... Uh, getting out of his car and yelling at Godzilla. He says, if this is some kind of publicity stunt, how would you like to get bumped right off the front page and right into the obituary column? So typical uh, angry, uh, you know, New York tough guy here. Uh, angry that his uh, his commute or whatever drive he's taking has been interrupted. I did think it was funny talking about a publicity stunt. We're here in 1978. We're not too far removed from 1976 when there was many publicity stunts featuring Godzilla in New York City for the release of Godzilla vs. Megalon, including handing out, and that they, they handed out buttons for Godzilla running for vice president, and a lot of stuff tied in with the elections for that year. So I just thought that was a, an interesting, uh, you know, aside that there's a statement about publicity stunts in New York with Godzilla when that's, you know, a thing that actually happened a few years earlier. Turning over now to page two, panel two. As uh, the tough guy realizes that, yeah, Godzilla's not playing around as he shoots up to uh, 20 feet, uh, one of the guys is running directly at us, at the reader, and he is rendered entirely in red with black with ink. So it, it's very striking. I guess the idea is that he's uh, running in, maybe he's being lit by a, a sign on a, on a storefront or something like that. It's very visually striking. It stands out amongst the more naturally colored uh, stuff around him. Um, and it, it really does pop that panel very nicely. It's every, there's a lot of black. It's going to be an ongoing theme in this issue because this takes place in the middle of the night. There's a lot of heavy inks and black incorporated into both the backgrounds and the foregrounds. Also, uh, very amusing, the woman behind the red guy looks a lot like Diana Prince uh, from this era of Wonder Woman comics. So I did a little double take there. It's like, wow, maybe she... I, I paid to see Wonder Woman fight the Godzilla. There was that one issue I covered way back when on um, Back to the Bins where she fought a Chinese dragon. So, you know, makes sense, right? I can see that. Turning over to page three, uh, panels three through five, Rob Takaguchi has all the feels, uh, once again, about uh, he doesn't want to be left behind. He wants to go help with Godzilla. But Dr. Takaguchi has had enough of Rob's crap and absolutely shuts him down, saying, Be silent, Robert. Time and again, I have permitted you to behave like a spoiled child. This time you will will be obedient instantly. I'm not sure that yelling at him like that would work. I can tell you that demanding that people obey usually means they do the exact opposite, but here it seems to work. I guess Rob is 
finally had somebody stand up to him at some point and um you know just just tell him what what's what and we don't see rob anymore after this page also kind of odd on panel five in the caption um tamara is referred to as tamara hashioka this is the first time we've seen her last name and i don't know when it might be going back to like issue two or something since we saw tamara's last name so a little bit of a callback there to continuity which is not the only time we will get that in this issue uh, flipping past a couple of pages of ads, we get over to page six. Uh, the first panel shows Godzilla kicking the abandoned cars out of his way. For, in all the world, it looks like he is playing kickball, especially since he has kicked this one red car and it is on its side. And you just see the tire flying off off of his foot. It really reminds me of, uh, you know, back in my school days in the school in the in the I say schoolyard in the parking lot that where we had our recess in my uh, school of playing kickball and that's that's the way it looks with his right leg extended out with the uh, the boot so that that really amused me similarly on page seven uh, the first panel shows godzilla tearing apart a street lamp as dum dum duggan uh, looks on in thought for some reason this really cracks me up i just get a ah, stupid street lamp out of my way you know i don't know why godzilla would attack a street lamp but he's doing it and he seems to be having a grand old time bending it and um, at about a 30 degree angle so i thought that was nice like I said, it, it made me laugh just because why would Godzilla attack a street lamp of all things? But hey, who knows what goes through Godzilla's mind. Later on, down at the bottom of page 7, uh, they get the uh, Dum Dum and Gabe Jones get the idea to use the flare guns to create bright lights to lure Godzilla in a certain way. And this is, they specifically call back to using the, um, the, the string of lights on the shield craft to attract Godzilla away from Seattle way back in issue number two. So we get a nice bit of continuity there. The men remembering, hey, we've already been able to lure Godzilla in a certain way at night uh, using bright lights. So we, we do that again. Now here, we don't have to cause a massive ca catastrophic power failure for a, gi a giant city in order to do it. So if, if nothing else, they've already shown that they've learned from the way they've done things in the past and have modified somewhat to you know, hopefully minimize the damage. Pages 10 and 11, the Fantastic Four, are introduced into the story. I'm very amused by the fact that Ben is, he's watching the Incredible Hulk when his show is interrupted by the breaking news about Godzilla in Manhattan. I thought that was really funny. You know, they interrupted my favorite program, the one based on that Hulk clown. But for this, it was worth it. And, uh, you know, the idea that the Incredible Hulk series is not only on the air in the Marvel Universe, but that Ben Grimm was watching it really, I don't know, that that's a very Marvel thing, and that really does amuse me. Um, ben looks about how I normally picture Ben from this era, from the Bronze Age, you know. He's got the, the big brow, uh, you know, the you know bulky body, you know, he's smoking a cigar. So Trimpy's depiction of the thing, I think, is, is pretty on. Uh, we see Reed Richards. Reed has a very heroic face. He's got a square jaw. Um, you know, he's got the, the typical white at the temples and a little bit of a, uh, spit curl there in the front. Reed looks, uh, good. You know, I'd, I, I'm always more, I'm always more prone to think of Reed looking like Jack Kirby would portray him where he was definitely a two-fisted scientist. Uh, you know, Silver Age Reed would have fit in just fine with the challengers of the unknown. I don't like the more wimpy portrayal of Reed as uh, other artists would depict as we got into the 80s and, and further along. Uh, later on on page 11, the Fantastic Car makes an appearance. A Fantastic Car is always welcome. 
and right below that we get a shot where we see Sue Storm in profile and Johnny turning his head to frown at her. Uh, Sue, I think, looks pretty good. Green's inks are a little much. She has a few extra lines on her brow and on her cheek, which I think, again, is, is going to show that this is at night and so she's kind of in shadow. But it serves to make her look, I think, older than than I think the intention was. Yeah, almost as if they're, um, you know, they're they're not not so much shadowing, but like you know, wrinkles and that kind of thing to age her. So that that's a little odd. And then Johnny's face, uh, he's just got this weird look on his face. He's got this big frown. His face is again very square jawed. He's the, almost the exact same facial structure as Reed up higher on the page. And his hair is actually pretty decent. It's being blown around because they're in the Fantastic Car. So Johnny's face overall doesn't really work well for me on this page. Okay, this brings us over to page 14, and right at the top, we see that they are luring Godzilla to the American Museum of Natural History. You can tell it's that because, first off, it's an extremely accurate depiction of the American Museum of Natural History, uh, the front of, a, of the building with the four large columns. Uh, uh, there is the inscription on top of the building, which says, Truth, Knowledge, and Vision. And in front of the building, we have the equestrian statue of Theodore Roosevelt, which is um, again, still stands to this day right in front of the museum. Now, the museum, the American Museum of Natural History, I've been to many times uh, as, a, as a kid and as a young, young adult. The first time that my now wife visited me when I was living in New York and she was still living in South Carolina, we went to Manhattan and we visited the American Museum of Natural History. Fantastic museum. If you're ever in Manhattan, you have an opportunity. I highly recommend it. It is a, a wonderful, wonderful natural history museum. Now, the... The American Museum of Natural History is at 79th Street and Central Park West. All right. Now, in previous issues, the behemoth was shown to have been birthed down at the Financial District, uh, down by Battery Park at the very end of Manhattan. Now, the as the crow flies, American Museum of Natural History is five miles from the Financial District. So did S.H.I.E.L.D. lure Godzilla all the way from the Financial District all the way up? to the other side of Central Park, into the American Museum of Natural History, that is a, a really long way to go. I mean, it's entirely possible. We see here that the NYPD has created barricades uh, around the museum to keep people away from it. So you can, you can reason that, okay, the NYPD created a path all the way from, from that end, uh, you know, up to Midtown and, and past Central Park to get Godzilla there, that they were able to get people off the streets. But that is still a lot of people to coordinate after dark. You know, this this is the late 70s, so we don't have cell phones and stuff like that. So we can't broadcast messages as easily to as large a group. You know, we had the emergency broadcast system, but if people are out in their cars or walking the streets, you're not going to be able to reach them. So now, potentially, S.H.I.E.L.D. could have moved to a more central location, perhaps on the Hudson River, which would have gotten this down... Uh, from, you know, from potential locations on the Hudson River, it would have been closer to about two miles. Again, as the crow flies, that's not counting having to go up and down the, the blocks, up and down the streets and avenues. But we never see anything to suggest that they have moved from their base of operations, which was shown to be down in the financial district. So, um, you know, it's, it's, so it's interesting how far they actually drove them. You also, what's even more bizarre is when you consider that when Godzilla was shrunk down to the smallest size, he started out in the financial district headed towards, uh, you know, headed north, you know, skirting past Chinatown and Little Italy and was under 8th Avenue. So he went up that far and then Rob finds him 
brings him back down to the financial district, and then he turns around and goes right back up. So it's like, man, he is getting he's getting his steps in. Godzilla's doing a lot of uh, pounding of the pavement, so to speak, up and down in here in Manhattan on on this adventure. I, I really love the depiction of the American Museum of Natural History again because it has it's such a, a focal point for me. But uh, you know, you really get the idea. Godzilla's getting a lot of he's getting he's getting his workout in. There's no question about it. Over on page 15, panel three, we look right down the gaping maw of Godzilla. Trimpy has done this on more than one occasion, and glad to see it come back. That leads us into uh, panel four, where we see Godzilla from behind, where he is uh, walking into the museum, and the interior archway, it's almost like it's lit by searchlight, because it's all bright yellow, but everything else around it is kind of, it's black with just a little bit of purple, kind of picking it out to show the, the edge. So, again, nice use of light and shadow, and we see the last flare that Gabe Jones has fired right into the doorway, and it's uh, you know flaring and smoking in uh, in front of him. We actually see it between Godzilla's leg and his tail. Very nicely composed panel. Uh, over on page sixteen, as the Shield team and the Fantastic Four move into uh, the interior of the museum, as again a lot of heavy blacks uh, to show that everything is in shadow because it's again it's the middle of the night and all the lights are turned off. So, uh, like on panel four, for instance, we see. Um, you know, Dum Dum is in the foreground and we can't see, we can see his nose and his mustache, but like his eyes are completely covered in shadow. His chin is completely covered. We see Ben Grimm, uh, coming in through the exit, uh, oddly, and most, his chest is all covered in shadow as are his ankles. And behind him is Reed Richards. And this looks very strange because of the coloring process at this time, you know, it's black and then it's almost like a blue rectangle with, uh, you know, vaguely shaped around him to show, you know, to pick out the blue behind him. So it looks kind of blotchy. It's kind of an art, it's not, it's an artifact of how the coloring was done. And it looks, you know, it's, it's not that impressive if you're used to modern coloring, but this was how you would do shadows, colors in shadows like this uh, on the traditional four color printing process. So again, a lot of, a lot of inks in that and a lot of shadows and darkness here. So very moody issue as they're stalking around the museum. Bottom of page 16, Dum Dum and Ben Grimm have a cigar measuring contest as they argue in each other's faces with their cigars pointing right at each other. They would never allow this in a modern Marvel comic, just putting that out there. On page 17, Reed Richards, on page 17, now that I'm looking at it, it's actually not Reed Richards that's in shadow on the previous page, it's Johnny Storm. Uh, I, I totally miss that because he is colored to have brown hair. Now I wonder if that's supposed to be the uh, blonde, Johnny's blonde hair, but in shadow, and so it looks brown. I missed that when I was doing my notes here. But Reed Richards comes in, and he had been uh, on the roof, and he had reached in through a skylight. And Dum Dum says, Fantastic Four, huh? Well, you don't look so fantastic to me, and besides, there's only three of you. And Reed says, Sue is on the roof securing the Fantastic Car. So essentially, she's parking the car. Now, fine. This, however, is such a lost opportunity for a great gag to have you know, Dum Dum say there's only three of you, and then Sue Storm be invisible behind him and tap him on the shoulder. I was like, "E gads!" or some ridiculous, you know, uh, you know, uh, Sergeant Fury and his Helen Commandos era exclamation from Dum Dum. That would have been really funny. So I'm, uh, I'm a little disappointed. What's the fact that you know Sue gets to handle? It's like, all right, Sue, you, we're gonna go take care of the monster. You handle the Fantastic Car. Like, really, guys? You know, again, more heavy inks and shadows on this page. Um, on pa panel three, as they start moving into the museum, the team comes across an exhibit of dinosaur fossils. Now, the American Museum of Natural History has a huge public exhibition space of fossils. In fact, the entire fourth floor of the building 
is devoted entirely to dinosaur fossils. And then there's also an exhibit right at the entrance, which at the time this was published would not have been there. That was in the early 90s, I want to say, that they added that. So growing up in New York, for me, a trip to the American Museum of Natural History always meant seeing the dinosaurs. That was the main thing. It's like, yeah, there's all the other stuff. There's the marine uh, the marine uh, life room with the giant blue whale on the top and all that. But to me, we always went to see the dinosaurs first, and that was always the thing I always remember was all the dinosaurs. Because like, like most little boys, you know, I loved dinosaurs growing up. So having them in and around the Museum of Natural History here with all the dinosaur fossils is, is fantastic. It's, it's really appropriate and very much on point for what, a, uh, what, what I thought of and what most people think of when they think of the American Museum of Natural History. Flipping through a non-story, couple of non-story pages, we get to page 22, and now it's time for a fight scene. The Fantastic Four is here after all, so good to have a fight scene. Um, ben Grimm gets tail chopped from off panel and is sent flying by Godzilla, and it's just oof, which is, I don't know, it, again, really cracks me up. The idea of a 20-foot-tall Godzilla tail-chopping Ben Grimm is, uh, as I said earlier, a very Marvel idea, and I'm very much in uh, in favor of it. Uh, now, on the panel three on this page, Ben is charging at Godzilla despite being told not to do that, and he is bent over so much. He's stepping on his left leg, and his right leg is trying behind him, and he's pulling back his right arm. It looks like he's going to go for an uppercut. Uh, he actually ends up shooting the leg because we see on panel four that he has shot the leg on Godzilla's left leg and is actually lifting him up, trying to do a, a grappling or wrestling takedown. But he is so far down that it looks like his knuckles of his left hand are dragging on the ground. It looks like he's tripping, which would have been funny to have been charged and then trip and Godzilla just kind of stare at him. But I, I, it, it's, you know, it, it, I'm not... The problem is that it's the panel border. It's not the floor, per se, that his fist is dragging against, but it's dragging against the panel border. So it looks like he's tripping and falling over rather than charging. But as I said, he does shoot the leg on Godzilla and picks him up, which, again, a wonderful, wonderful bit of, of Marvel Universe interacting with Godzilla, where you've got the ever-loving blue-eyed thing shooting the leg on Godzilla. That's, that's just great. This leads directly onto page 23, where panel one, we've got Godzilla and Ben Grimm facing off against each other. Ben is cocking back his right fist. Godzilla is, you know, looming over him. And it's like, that that sells a story to me right there. And then Godzilla's not, you know, Godzilla's not messing around. So he blasts him with atomic breath at, like, point-blank range. Now, I, I've gone on at length, admittedly, on this show about the use of Godzilla's atomic breath on regular people in this comic and how they're all, you know, dying horrible, horrible slow deaths right now. Uh, this one I'm not going to complain about because Ben Grimm's armored hide, I feel, would give him a pretty decent measure of protection against Godzilla's atomic breath, especially when one considers that it was a radioactive, uh, a type of radiation, I should say, the cosmic rays that gave him his power. And different types of radiation have been shown to affect him such as, I think, the gamma rays turned him human at one point, or maybe turned him into a savage. Uh, it, it's been different things over the years. So Ben Grimm being able to withstand Godzilla's atomic breath because of his physical structure, I'm on board with that, and I don't have any problem with that. And again, to me, that's making good use of, uh, you know, use setting it in the Marvel Universe, having him interact, having Godzilla interact with somebody like the Thing, who could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him when Godzilla shrunk down here. Later on down the page... Uh, panel six, Johnny Storm enters the fray and we get a wonderful shot of a big right hook clobbering time from Ben Grimm as Johnny blasts Godzilla in the head with a flame blast. The background is just the explosion of 
power just the force lines and everything really nice panel here of uh, our, our two heroes and our monster duking it out right in the middle of the museum over onto page 26 panel one ben uh, continues his assault now using a big left with a clud that sends godzilla crashing back much to the horror of dr hawkins as uh, Godzilla crashes right through one of the fossils and uh, dis you know, breaks it into pieces. So it's like, oh, that is that is bad. That's very bad. But that's that Ben Grimm collateral damage aspect, right? So yeah, it wouldn't be a good Ben Grimm uh, dust-up if he didn't cause some kind of damage to somebody else's property. That's really his thing. Uh, later on down the page, Reed Richards tangles up Godzilla with his uh, stretchy arms, and then Sue creates a force field around him with the idea that they're going to make Godzilla pass out from a lack of oxygen. Here's my question. How does Sue make this force field with solid like that, with Reed's arms tangled up with Godzilla? Wouldn't, shouldn't there be a gap for his arms to go through, which would mean it can't be airtight so he couldn't use up the oxygen? Is she making the force field like perfectly around Reed's arms? But Reed's arms are going to be moving because Godzilla is going to be fighting and flailing. So I'm not, I'm not sure how this works. It's all for naught because the first panel of page 27, Godzilla breaks out the uh, breaks out of the force field, and as one expects from a Fantastic Four comics of certain vintage, Sue is down and uh, you know um, just passed out on the ground from the um, terrible strain of someone breaking her force field, as is you know again fairly common in this era. Uh, panel three on page 27 shows Godzilla disappearing into the shadows. Again, nice use of heavy blacks. As the doorway, as he is going to to a um, an era that is displaying, or a, a room, I should say, for the Cretaceous period, the doorway is just completely black ink, and we just see Godzilla kind of suggested. We see a little bit of his uh, his right leg, we see a tail spine, and we see his tail. And Ben gives chase, and when Ben gives chase, he's ambushed. You know, I don't know how how much noise you got to be making for Godzilla to pause, turn, and then blast you with atomic breath in ambush. Once again, and Ben's double response of "youch" is, you know, just dead on Ben Grimm right there. Also, Godzilla is snorting out of his nose as he's blasting atomic breath. I don't know that I've seen Trimpy show that uh, previously in this series, but again, I like it. It's a relatively small panel, but it, it's a nice depiction again of Ben taking a point blank range of atomic breath. I do. Uh, I'm guessing the unstable molecules in his trunks are what's keeping, you know, his his trunks from getting burned apart and the intense heat of the torrid of radioactive fire being blasted on him. Over now onto page 30, Sue has recovered, but she's uh, a little unsteady. We've got to hurry, Reed. If we don't stop that creature... Uh, you know, I'm, I, I love Sue Storm. I think most Marvel fans have a, a soft spot for the Invisible Girl slash Invisible Woman. Even, you know, again, if she's not treated as a really effective and useful member of the team a lot of the time here. Um, not not uh, By this era into the late 70s, she had, especially in the main Fantastic Four book, they had started really um, portraying her in a more competent manner. Although every now and again, they, they did kind of fall back on this trope. And Mench uses it a bit here where, you know, she has to, to pass out from the effort and all that. But she does recover. And this leads us later on down on panel five, Ben and Godzilla are on a catwalk above an open shark tank. And this is a really small tank to have five big sharks swimming around. There's like no room for them to move at all. And so Ben clobbers Godzilla and uh, this leads us over to page 31. Godzilla falls face first 
into the shark tank. Uh, there's a Jaws reference here from Dum Dum Duggan. He, uh, cause, uh, Dr. Hawkins says, oh dear, I'm afraid my idea has turned into something very close to a disaster. And Dum Dum says, you can say that again, Hawkins, and talk about Jaws. I got a feeling we're in for some real teeth gnashing. But I have to ask, is Godzilla in any danger here? I mean, let's say, for the purposes of argument, these are great white sharks. Let's just go to the, you know, top of the food chain as far as, uh, sharks, right? Can even a great white shark penetrate Godzilla's hide, even with Godzilla shrunk down? Yeah, their teeth are sharp, but Godzilla's not a regular animal. He's a, you know, his hide is really tough. And, and wouldn't the sharks be in more danger of being, I don't know, stabbed or blasted by Godzilla? Godzilla can stay underwater indefinitely and doesn't, uh, you know, have any weaknesses to being in the water. I just don't know that the sharks would be able to do anything to him. So the cliffhanger to me is really not uh, not that uh, exciting because I don't get any sense of danger either for uh, our, our shield of Fantastic Four or for Godzilla. I just think he's going to swat these. He'll either just immediately break the tank, which means that now you've got a problem because now you've got to get these sharks back in some water, right? Because, you know, they, they, they can't be out of the water, obviously. And then Godzilla's free. So I, I just don't see how this puts uh, our titular monster in any real peril. So that, to me, is a, is a weak point of the issue. Overall, though, fun issue. It makes very good use of it, of, of being set in the American Museum of Natural History. Again, I'm a big fan of the American Museum of Natural History, having visited it many times. And so seeing it depicted in a, uh, a pretty uh, well-crafted and well-researched way, I thought was was nice. You know, that said, I don't ever remember there being live animal displays at the American Museum of Natural History. So this whole Shark Tank thing, that doesn't work. That That's where it falls off the rails as far as the setting. Uh, and as a Marvel fan, I always appreciate when the Fantastic Four do a guest spot. Now, they're first family of Marvel, as I said. So having them pop up to me is uh, always, almost always a, a good uh, you know, way to get my interest in the issue. Say, hey, the Fantastic Four interacting with people they don't normally interact with. That's neat. Also suits them because, you know, they have such a broad base of things because they're uh, you know, everything is science. So you can, you can see Reed Richards getting people into all, you know, is getting the Fantastic Four into all sorts of weird corners of the Marvel universe. Um, there are some missed chances in this, in this issue. Besides the bit I mentioned earlier with Sue, where she could have snuck up on Dum Dum, we do not get either an It's Clobber in Time or a Flame On, despite the fact that there is perfect opportunities for both of them. And you know, I would have liked to have at least seen one of the catchphrases, if not both of them. That, to me, is uh, an excellent trope of Marvel Comics, and it's disappointing not to see it. Uh, Green's inking does a good job of conveying the shadows of the night in the city, but unfortunately it does get a bit much on some of the characters' faces. I mentioned uh, Sue Storm. We see it a couple of times where she looks, I think, older than she's supposed to be at this point. It's because the inks on her face are a little too heavy. A lighter touch on the inks might have kept uh, her complexion uh, a little bit younger-looking. And uh, and while still allowing for all of the heavy inks to show the shadowy uh, the setting that they're all uh, walking around in. The fight scene is a lot of fun. Great seeing uh, the thing and the human torch tangling with Godzilla. I mean, that's that's you, you say that sentence and you get a smile on your face. But the cliffhanger overall is weak. So I'm also very curious how we go from here, fighting the Fantastic Four in the middle of Manhattan, to being with devil dinosaur next issue so i'm curious how that's going to work uh I'm, I'm sure mensch has something up his sleeve 
uh, for how that's going to go. So overall, I thought this was a, a fun issue. I think it's helped a lot, again, by having uh, a cool setting and some very welcome guest stars. And uh, very much enjoying Godzilla. It's, it, it's really been a, uh, a fun read, if not exactly the deepest or, you know, most life-altering book that Marvel was putting out at this time. Uh, our letters column this time has more uh, backhanded kind of compliments from readers uh, for Godzilla, saying like, hey, you know, uh, you know, I, Godzilla's ridiculous, but this Marvel comic is great. It's like, well, again, that, that suits uh, the time and is in line with the general um, um, opinion about Toho and Godzilla at this time in the 1970s in the West. So it's, it's a product of its time. There's also a very long story in the letters column about Herb Trimpey flying his biplane to go visit Doug Mensch and the two of them reading fan mail and concocting a Godzilla Christmas story, which uh, I don't know that I'd ever saw print, but, you know, I guess we'll find out as we continue because I have not read ahead. I'm, I'm still uh, reading these one at a time as I cover them. Uh, the Bullpen's Bulletin's page, Stan Soapbox, is a column about the origin of Irving Forbush, which I thought was, was rather uh, amusing as a uh, old Marvel fan. Uh, we have items about magazines and super specials. We get a little item about Battlestar Galactica. They hype Daredevil number 157, specifically hyping Mary Jo Duffy as a mysterious guest writer. This got to be one of her earliest credits with Marvel. So I thought that was, was very nice. We also talk about Conan the Barbarian. The Bullpen's Bulletin's page has an image of the Black Panther. Um, now, issue 14 of the Black Panther series was on sale this same month, but there's no items about the Black Panther in, uh, in, in the Bullpen Bulletin. So I went and I looked up uh, the plot for Daredevil 157. Black Panther is not involved in that story. I think the image is by the then current penciler of Black Panther, who was Jerry Bingham. He had taken over from Jack Kirby a few issues prior. This is the Black Panther series that was started out as being written and drawn by, by Jack Kirby with King Solomon's Frog. Again, uh, I was on an episode of Back to the Bends that I think Paul Spataro brought that one uh, quite a while back, now that I'm remembering it. I, that was The first issue of that was then reprinted by Marvel for their True Believers, their $1 reprint series when it was the anniversary of, uh, of, of King Kirby's uh, birth. Um, but again, I'm just not sure why there's an image of the Black Panther there, especially since the Black Panther book would end with issue 15, with the next issue published. I'm not, maybe there was an intention to call out the Black Panther in the, um, in the bullpen bulletins and it just got moved for space. I'm just not sure, but, uh, you know, always neat to see big time movie star, the Black Panther, uh, popping up. As always, if you would like to read this, it is collected in Essential Godzilla, as are all the issues. In addition, in the book, we get ads for uh, the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, one of my... Uh, my brother's a big fan of the original, but the, the remake is good, too. We do get a house ad for the Shogun Warriors. There shall come a day when Titans walk the earth. Titans dedicated to defending our world from the dark forces of evil. There shall come the Shogun Warriors. And I really like that they say every month, Doug Mench and Herb Trimpey join forces to portray the incredible saga of Rydeen Kambatra and Dan Gardais. So they are advertising the the same creative team that is doing the book that this advertisement is in. So that is uh, very, very cool. Uh, of course, uh, I naturally did them backwards, doing the Shoguns before I did uh, the, the Marvel Godzilla. Uh, we get the Marvel subscription page with... Uh, Spider-Man, uh, you know, lamenting at the guy at the newsstand. We get a house ad for Pizzazz. Uh, we also get a very nice full-page house ad for Power Man and Iron Fist, uh, presenting a new era of greatness, showing the cover to Power Man and Iron Fist number 50. And um, 
we then get, uh, let's see, we got all hodgepodge ad, that sort of thing. Now, we also get a hostess ad starring none other than Marvel's other green monster, the Incredible Hulk. And the Incredible Hulk changes his mind, which goes a little something like this. All Hulk wants is to be left alone. Why do puny humans hound Hulk? Huh? Humans even follow Hulk here. You are just a boy, not big enough to bother Hulk. Why would I want to bother you? You want people to leave you alone? I can take care of that. Whoever's in there is friendly, tossing us these delicious Hostess cupcakes. Mmm, smooth chocolatey icing. Moist devil's food cake. Boy, not very big, but very smart. I'm glad I picked up enough Hostess cupcakes. Today, Hulk thinks humans okay. Hulk may change Hulk's mind tomorrow. I'll never change my mind about Hostess cupcakes. They're always great. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess cupcakes. Uh, would have been nice to see uh, a nice change of pace. See Hulk maybe just go smash these three dudes that are eating the cupcakes. Uh, but, yeah, you know, that's a bit much. Uh, Hulk uh, interacting with the little boy is cute. He's holding him up on the palm of his hand as the little boy sits. And uh, I don't know why this kid is giving away all these Hostess cupcakes. You'd think if he uh, had all these cupcakes, he would have scored himself away in a tree and eaten them up. Uh, and uh, he doesn't give one to the Hulk, which is odd. You'd think Hulk would get mad. Why, boy, not give Hulk chocolate, you know? But I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking it. Uh, all right, so that's all I've got on Godzilla number 20. Have you read this one? What do you think? Uh, did you like seeing the Fantastic Four make a guest appearance? Did you think that uh, Mench and Trimpy and company should have gone in a different direction? Why don't you send me a message, and we'll talk about it here on the air, Directive at yahoo.com. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back to close out the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. In the annals of television history, there are TV shows and characters that changed our culture and helped define generations. These are not those shows. It's time to close up the bar, leave the war, and quit your yuppie whining so you can step on board the Enterprise D, run alongside the Hoff, stop time with your fingers, and introduce your family to the Voice Input Child Identikit. Because this summer, Pop Culture Affidavit is taking you to the depths of 80s and 90s television with... It came from syndication! For seven weeks, I'll be taking a look at a variety of syndicated TV genres, from the lauded science fiction of Star Trek The Next Generation to the... This was a show? Of small wonder. Along the way, we'll battle with the Thundercats, run through the funhouse, give thumbs up at the movies, and have a very current affair. Pop Culture Affidavit presents... It Came From Syndication! Coming July 11th, to popcultureaffidavit.com and two true freaks.com. All right, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive, and it is now time for everyone's favorite segment of the show, listener feedback. And if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can always send me an email at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also reach me on Twitter or Facebook, and all of that information is in the outro to the show. So let's get right into it. Our first email today comes from my good friend in front of the show, Mr. Adam Tebow. 
and the subject is the behemoth. Hey Luke, I was just listening to the latest episode where you were wondering if the behemoth had ever shown up again in the Marvel Universe. I'm happy to inform you that it did. There was a plot line in the Incredible Hercules comic where Amadeus Cho stole it from a shield base. After that, after the theft, excuse me, Dum Dum Duggan comments that the ship had been in mothballs since they were chasing around that giant lizard years ago. I remember getting a big kick out of that reference when I was reading through that series a few years ago. Keep them stomping, Adam. That is fantastic. Little things like that, that, you know, that that's the strength of the Marvel Universe is that all this stuff happened. It may not, uh, it may not necessarily be important, but it did happen. So that is great. I'm glad the behemoth made a, uh, a further appearance. Uh, you know, when we finish Godzilla, we'll, we'll be covering some books that cover some further appearances of some of the, um, characters from this book. And we see that they don't always, um, you know, they don't always, uh, proceed in a way you might think, but it, it is nice to make reference to things that have happened, even if it's, you know, only, uh, uh kind of an esoteric obscure thing that only a few readers might get, but it's, it shows, you know, a little bit of, nudge nudge wink wink fan service and it's uh it's always appreciated thank you very much for writing in adam our second email comes from rich and the subject is love the show and rich writes hello mr jackanetti i've been enjoying your show since i discovered it a couple of years ago as well as the rest of the network however i will say that your show was actually the gateway that got me into the two true freaks network well i'm glad to be of service uh, I can say I grew up on the Godzilla movies. In fact, the first one I saw at the theaters with my dad was Godzilla vs. Megalon. I know that one is one of the lower-ranking movies, but I love it. It may just be a nostalgia thing, but anytime I see it on, I will stop and watch it. Uh, yeah, a lot of people have that experience because Godzilla vs. Megalon got such a wide release. Uh, Cinema Shares did such a good job marketing that film that I, I've talked to quite a few people that that was the first Godzilla film they saw. It was actually, I think, the... Technically, the fourth Godzilla film I saw as a kid, because it was uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters and Ghidorah and then Monster Zero with Rodan in there as well. And then uh, Godzilla vs. Megalon was the first Godzilla film I ever had on a commercial tape. Uh, with being in the public domain at that time, it was very easy to find cheap VHS copies of Godzilla vs. Megalon. So I'm glad you have that memory. It's a, it, that, again, the movie is, the quality is, is dubious, but the memories associated with it are, are wonderful, I think. Uh, getting back into Rich's email. Your coverage of the Marvel Godzilla series has been awesome. I collected those as a child myself. I can almost visualize a lot of the comics that I had as you described them in your podcast. I have also enjoyed your coverage of the Ultraman series, one that I would rush home from school just so I could see, followed by Speed Racer. Go Speed Racer! Go Speed Racer! Go Speed Racer! Go! And Hanna-Barbera's World of Super Adventure. That sounds like a full afternoon to me right there. Ultraman, Speed Racer, and Hanna-Barbera World of Super Adventure? Dude, right on. I would hope that you will cover Johnny Sacco and his flying robot. That seems to be a show that a lot of people either forgot about or actually never heard of. And it is, in my opinion, actually better than Ultraman. Granted, in today's society, it wouldn't be very politically correct, where they had a lot of excitement and a lot of action and a pretty good story. Also looking forward to you covering War the Gargantuas, in my opinion, Kaiju Greatness. I look for, forward to further episodes and keep on stomping, signed Rich. Rich, first of all, thank you very much for writing in. I'm glad that you're enjoying the show and enjoying the coverage of Marvel Godzilla and, and Ultraman. Um, I, I would love to cover Johnny Sacco and his flying robot. The issue is, again, not so much an issue, it's just it's a time thing. I, I want to finish Ultraman before I start another 
uh, TV series, and it very well could be Johnny Sacco. It's one of the ones on my shortlist. I've got that, Ultra 7, uh, a few of the Heisei or even the modern Ultraman series just to kind of give a different perspective. What I love about Johnny Sacco and his flying robot, first off, the the whole concept of you know the this uh, the one super team fighting the evil super team and the kid is there and they've got the the secret weapon giant robot it's it's so wonderfully um kitschy in that it's not trying to be anything more than an entertaining enjoyable 30 minute show to the point that we see in the 70s that you know, uh, Toho starts kind of simplifying their plots a little bit because of the popularity of the tokusatsu TV shows that were uh, drawing attention away from their, their movies. You know, TV was technically, or not technically, but ostensibly free. Going to the movies might cost money. So I, I, I we will cover something of Johnny Sacco in, uh, on the show. I'm just not sure when we're going to be able to get to it. I, I really do like that show. Also very neat, if you get the local multicast station Comet. Uh, check on you know some of the the um, you know some of the the secondary channels on if you have an over the air antenna or some of your secondary channels on your cable service if you have cable. Look for Comet. Comet shows Johnny Sacco and his flying robot on the weekends. Uh, usually like seven o'clock in the morning, seven thirty in the morning. So that you can, and it, it's the old classic dub. So um, from AIP Television. So you can see some Johnny Sacco on free over the air TV. Also, I think it's uh, CometTV.com. You can stream their broadcast. So if you're up at the right time, you can see Johnny Sacco there. If you've never uh, seen Johnny Sacco, or if you want to re relive some childhood memories. Uh, as far as War of the Gargantuas, yes, uh, I'm very much looking forward to getting that, a classic. I've had more people ask me about that movie than any other topic on Earth Destruction Directive, and yes, we will be getting to War of the Gargantuas. Um, I'm not sure, again, when that's going to be. I've got to lay out the schedule for next year still, but uh, very, very much looking forward to that because that's another one from my childhood that I remember and have a lot of fond memories watching that one with my brother, appropriately enough. Uh, Rich, thank you very much uh, uh, for emailing in. Uh, again, if you want to get in touch, please send me an email or hit me up on social media. And speaking of social media, the last episode of Earth Destruction Directive got social media likes, shares, and retweets from Relatively Geeky, Gene Hendricks, Alan Middleton, Robert Ludwig, Tony Click, Logan Garrett, History of Comics on Film, Tyler Weinstein, Jason Giaconetti, who is that guy, Fanholes Podcast, Chuck Rodriguez, Joe Rad, Chris Tyler, the hair metal hero, Christopher Warden, Adam Tebow, David Croson, and Derek W. Crabb. So I uh, would those likes, shares, and retweets are always appreciated. So please keep them coming. They're very much, uh, very much part of the lifeblood of this show, getting the world out there. And now we come to the time in the episode where we have to say, what are we covering next time? Well, you know, Rich emailed in saying he was enjoying Ultraman. Well, we're going back to the original Ultraman as we are taking a look at Ultraman episodes 19 and 20, which feature the monsters Aborus and Barilla, and then Hydora. So uh, uh, the Aborus and Barilla is one of my favorites because those two monsters coming, you know, spoilers, just beat the living hell out of each other for almost the entire episode. Uh, very interesting episode and that changes up the format by having two monsters. We also will be taking a look at Marvel Godzilla number 21, more Godzilla versus the Fantastic Four and Devil Dinosaur somehow. So very cool to get uh, not one but two sets of Jack Kirby creations in uh, guest starring in Godzilla. We'll also have any new news on... Uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters on 
sssss.gridman, on the Ultraman anime, on anything coming out in the world of giant monsters. Uh, and if you have any news, please go ahead and send that in. Uh, at this time, I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show. Again, I, I say this every, every month, every episode, but I really, you're all appreciated. And again, all are welcome. This show is for everyone. If you want to listen to a show about giant monsters, I thank you for downloading it and you are welcome to do so. And I welcome everyone to send in feedback and comments and let's keep the discussion going about uh, this crazy world about, uh, you know, men in suits tearing apart uh, model cities. So come on back next time for a couple episodes of Ultraman. And until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF <laughs> moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. It's more frightening than I ever thought possible.